Isn't it good to worship? Doesn't that like just refocus your whole week back to where the Lord is and the relationship that and the love that he has for us and I don't know, it's just uh, fun to worship. It's great to worship. Um, when we're together uh, over the summer, we uh, plan to uh, look at some of the parables, some of the uh, stories that Jesus used to teach us um, how to be like him. Because really, uh, you know, life doesn't always go the way that we want it to go, right? It doesn't always go right. Uh, a few people nodding their heads, right? Um, <clears throat> sometimes uh, things that we don't expect happen to us and we have to deal with those. And so um, this morning, I'd like to invite you to just think about uh, some of that. And things go wrong, uh, not because of Murphy's Law, right? I mean, I understand there is a Murphy who is in this church. It's nice to have somebody to blame for everything. That's kind of neat. Uh, but it's because of Satan and his influence on the kingdom of this world and on this life. And so last time we were together, we uh, talked a little bit about uh, Jesus using a parabolic illustration of living water. You might remember he was uh, having a conversation with the woman at the well, and uh, Jesus was trying to offer her living water, and she had these issues in her life, you know, she... Uh, she was a Samaritan. She had an ethnic kind of issue, and the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along, and, and so she felt a little inferior in his presence there. She had a kind of a shaky past, and, uh, you know, uh, she brought that up, and then she also uh, talked about growing up in a religious tradition that Jesus was trying to show her sort of hid the truth from her, and uh, so on. And the Lord basically said, you know, we have to accept things that we can't change, right? You can't really change your ethnic background. You can't really change your past. And uh, you can't change how you grew up and the things that you were taught and the influences that have come up in your life in the past and, and so on. And Jesus said, none of that really matters because I have living water. And if you'll take this, and he said, it's a gift. It's a gift from your Father in heaven and if you drink of this water, you will be satisfied in life. You will never thirst again. I will lift you above all those other issues and fill you with the life of God, eternal life, living water. So this morning, <clears throat> I'd like to invite you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 20, where we have a, a true parable, a story that Jesus tells, and um, I want to suggest to you that this story has to do with our attitude when things don't go our way. What kind of attitudes do we find ourselves embracing or uh, find ourselves falling back on when things don't go the way that we want them to go? So Matthew chapter 20. Now in Matthew chapter 19, right before, this kind of sets the setting for the story that Jesus tells, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus meets a man who is wealthy and young. Uh, verse 16, Behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Okay, and so the Lord interacts with him and so forth. But by uh, the end of the conversation, verse 22, When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He didn't want to leave everything and follow Jesus, okay? 
So Peter, right, he's watching this exchange between this rich young man and the Lord. And in verse 27, then Peter kind of pops up in the way that Peter usually does. And uh, Peter says, um, hey, we, us disciples, we've left everything and followed you. What's in it for us? What's in it for us? What will we receive for uh, following you? And we've left everything. You know, that's what the other guy wasn't willing to do. But we've done that. Uh, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What's in it for us? And so um, the Lord answers, uh, verse 28, and he says this. "Um, Truly, I say to you, in the new world, in the new world, now, I would suggest to you that in the millennial uh, kingdom, um, by the way, I understand that this church was a part of the uh, uh, conservative Baptist group before it came and joined uh, the conference that we're a part of now. And uh, that conservative Baptist group, as I understand it, uh, came into being really because they embraced a premillennial In other words, Jesus was going to come back before this millennium started and Jesus was going to rule in the world and restore all things. Acts chapter 3, Peter actually talks about that. But I think he's saying, uh, the Lord is saying to Peter, I I tell you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, uh, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So Jesus is, I think, drawing a line between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God and the Lord coming back and establishing a millennial period of time on the earth which will uh, demonstrate who he really is and he will govern the world and everything will finally uh, be like God intended it to be. And so uh, the Lord answers like that and, and then he goes into this uh, parable, this story in chapter 20. But I would just point out one other thing that um, the very last thing before Jesus gives this story is the many, many people who are first will be last and last will be first. And when he gets done with this story, he repeats the same thing. If you look at the end of the story in uh, Matthew 20, verse 16, uh, the last will be first and the first will be last. So this story is bracketed by the fact that those of us who follow Christ aren't always first in this life, right? But there will be a time when uh, reality uh, will come back. And so uh, chapter 20, verse 1, for Jesus talking, here's the story. You're probably familiar with this. For the kingdom of heaven is like, and many of the parables start out like this, the kingdom of heaven is different than the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of heaven is like this, Jesus is going to say, and then he uh, gives his story. This is the way it is in the kingdom of heaven as opposed to uh, the kingdom of this world. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. 
after agreeing with the laborers, after making a deal, after signing a contract, after, you know, negotiating uh, what's going to happen here. You're going to go to work in my field, and I'm going to give you a day's pay. Uh, a denarius was about a day's pay uh, in those days. And so uh, <clears throat> this is what the kingdom is like. Verse 3 and 4. And going out about the third hour, about 9 o'clock now in the morning, uh, and, and you know this story, right? Going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, uh, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I'll give you. Notice the difference between the first group, and then he's going to go again at you know 12 o'clock, and he goes again at 3 o'clock, and he goes again at 5 o'clock. If you assume that the workday went from 6 in the morning to 6 at night, the last group, they're only going to work an hour, okay? But he goes out and he sends them out. But notice the first group he makes a deal with. He negotiates with. But the other groups, he just says, trust me. And I'll give you what's right. And so I want to kind of ask the question this morning, you know, is your relationship with the Lord more like a negotiating kind of thing? Whereas if I do this right and I do this for you, I expect that you're going to bless me and you're going to take care of me and nothing really bad is ever going to happen to me and, and so on. Or is your relationship more like a trust relationship where you so know the heart of the Father and he's so generous and he's so loving and you so trust him that when he tells you to go and serve in some capacity or another, you're not really even thinking about what's in it for you. You're just thinking about pleasing this Father who loves you, this master of this uh, kingdom who has shed his blood for you. And so um, that's kind of the way the story sets up. The, the, the vineyard owner does this to all the other groups. He says, let's establish a trust relationship. You just trust me and I'll give you what's right when it's done. Trust me. So when something bad happens in your life or something you know, goes away that you didn't want it to go or you didn't expect it to go, can I just trust that he knows what he's doing. He's allowing things for a purpose, and his purpose is always good, and he has an intention for it, and, and so on. And so uh, verse 8 uh, gets to be the end of the day. When evening comes, the owner of the vineyard says to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last. Start with the last, right? That's the last group. They only worked an hour. And he's intentional about telling his foreman to start with them, and um, start with the last, and then go up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. So now all of a sudden they've got some expectation. They watch the guy who worked an hour get a day's pay, and they're like, wow, we worked 12 hours, we're going to get 12 days pay. That's what we deserve right? Uh, these guys only worked an hour, and so they're watching this whole thing go down. And um, they each got only a denarius, verse 11. And on receiving it, they grumbled. Attitude. They grumbled at the master. And uh, here's what they said. Uh, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. Okay? Grumbled. Um, if you think about this, 
Uh, you can probably hear this going on. Maybe you've been a part of discussions like this. Maybe at work, you know, you got passed over and somebody else got the promotion or the raise or, you know, the corner office or whatever it is. And you're like, hey, you know, this isn't fair. Why is this happening to me, you know? And uh, you start uh, grumbling. And so uh, these guys thought that they deserved more. Now, one temptation that I think comes in situations when things don't work out the way that we expect them to or want them to is we begin to feel sorry for ourselves. Uh, We begin to have maybe self-pity. And we think, wow, you know, this shouldn't be happening. Like these workers who worked all day and then uh, got the same as those who just put in an hour. And we start to say, you know, poor me, I deserve better uh, than this. Have you ever been there? Has that ever happened to you, you know? Okay, so um, the thing is, feeling sorry for ourselves never helps us. It never helps us. Feeling sorry for ourselves, if you think about it, it it can't change whatever it is that's happened. Um, Self-pity never makes you feel better. Um, It can wear out your relationship with other people if it lasts too long. Uh, It can drown out the still small voice of God even, the voice of the master here, uh, the master of the vineyard. And uh, feeling sorry for ourselves, I think, keeps us from focusing on others who might need uh, the uh, comfort and the love and the gospel that we have to give to them because we're so focused on poor me and all that's happened to me that I can't get past it and so forth. And, you know, this happens to all of us, I think, and we're in good company. You might remember uh, Elijah, right, in the Old Testament in 1 Kings. He's under that broom tree, you know, and he just killed 450 of the bad guys. And instead of celebrating and being excited about it, you know what, he's like, that lady Jezebel is after me. I can't deal with this, you know. And he's down in the dumps, and God has to come to him and, and speak to him. You might think of Jonah. You remember Jonah? God's like, you go to the Ninevites, and you preach about the judgment that's coming upon them, and then they all repent, right? And God doesn't bring the judgment. And Jonah's down in the dumps singing the blues. And he too, God has to come to him and talk to him and reason with him. Uh, to get past that kind of self-pity, that poor me, that feeling sorry for myself kind of thing. Uh, Think about Peter. Uh, Remember, Peter denies Jesus, and then at the end in John 21, Jesus comes and says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, yeah, you know. But Peter had gone fishing, remember? And Jesus comes, do you love me? Do you love me? Three times, do you love me? And, And the Lord each time says, well, if you love me, then go feed my sheep. Stop fishing and get back to what you're supposed to do. Stop feeling sorry for yourself because you blew it, you know. I'll forgive you and we can move on and so forth. And then if you think of Jesus himself, you realize that Jesus, who was mistreated and suffered all kinds of emotional pain throughout his whole ministry, he never allowed self-pity to slow him down. He never allowed feeling sorry for himself. He was rejected. He was lied about. He was betrayed by friends. He was laughed at. He was mocked. He was spit on. He was targeted. But he never felt sorry for himself, even on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Never did he give in to self-pity and so on. 
So the truth is, uh, it's not really what happens to us that matters so much in life as what happens in us. How we respond to what happens to us. We often don't have a whole lot of control over what happens to us, but we do have control over how we're going to respond to whatever it is that God allows to come into our lives. And um, I I just think that getting through those things... Um, We need to be conscious of uh, our attitudes in the midst of them. There's a story about a a high school football player who's a quarterback, star quarterback on this team in this town, and um, uh, they had a great season. They're all the way down to the end. It's the championship game coming up, and three days before the game, his mom dies. And uh, nobody knows what's going to happen now, and uh, he's, of course, devastated, wasn't expected. And uh, the coach didn't know really what to do, so he decided I should just leave it up to him. I don't really have a good backup, but I'm going to leave it up to the kid to decide what he wants to do. And so nobody really knew whether he was going to show up or not. And finally, uh, the night of the big game comes, and this kid comes running out with the team. <clears throat> and when the team goes off to um, you know, kind of do warm-ups, this kid goes over to the stands And uh, about five rows up in the stands, there's an empty chair draped in black. And he stands in front of that chair down on the field, and he says, Mom, I'm playing this game for you. I love you, and I'm playing this game for you. Now, if he had chosen self-pity, if he had said, I just can't play, I'm so devastated, and, you know, I just can't go on, and, and, and so on, he'd have brought the whole team down probably. But instead, he chose, you know, to have an attitude that says, this is an event I can't change. I have to accept things that, you know, I cannot change. And I'm, I'm, I have a choice here. And he went out and he played the game and they won the championship. Because he used that event uh, to uh, sort of surge uh, forward. So there's two kinds of workers in Jesus' story, right? There's some who have made a deal and have expectations of getting paid for the day, uh, and so forth. Uh, They kind of have an understanding or a contract, if you would, uh, and they're focused on what's in it for me. And then there's others who enter into this trust relationship with this master of the vineyard. And it's two different groups of people. And so he purposely pays the last ones first, I think, to show off how generous The Lord is. In this parable, obviously, uh, the Lord is the owner of the vineyard, right? And the laborers are us, Jews and Gentile uh, servants of God. And so um, in verse uh, 13, um, we begin to get an explanation. The guy who grumbled and said, you know, you're not being fair and so forth. In verse 13, Jesus uh, tells in his story how the master replies. He replied uh, to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius a day? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give uh, to the last workers as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I chose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Why did the master do this? Well, to show off how generous he really is. Why do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. 
Uh, those who are looking out for our own interests will end up last, and those who are looking out for the Lord's interests and his kingdom and the advance of his uh, kingdom uh, will be first. And there's a world of difference between uh, these two groups of people. I think he wanted to show that the master is trustworthy, that he's generous, um, and maybe to expose the motives, you know, uh, and the attitudes that were in that first group who kind of had the wrong motives, which he sort of picked up from Peter maybe way back in verse 27 of uh, Matthew 19. And that's maybe why he uh, told this story. So notice this, um, comparison, comparison often leads to self-pity. Peter compared himself to the rich guy, right, uh, who walked away and wouldn't follow Jesus and said, hey, we did, so what's in it for us? out of comparing himself with that. Uh, Peter was just a poor fisherman, but he did leave everything to follow Jesus. And uh, same thing in John chapter 21. Uh, You remember when the Lord has that exchange and asks him three times, you know, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? And uh, finally Peter follows, and then he turns around and he looks at John, and he says to the Lord, well, well, what about John? You know, and the Lord basically says, none of your business. You keep your focus on Jesus, don't get your focus on other people and start comparing yourself, you know, and if, if I want John to live until I come back, what's that to you? It's my business, not yours. But he was comparing Peter, right? He, that's why we love Peter, he's so much like us. He compares himself to other people and then all of a sudden he's in trouble and his attitudes and self-pity uh, finds its way in there. I think when we take our focus off of Jesus and compare ourselves with other people, we start to envy and we start to covet. And, uh, you know, it leads to self-pity. It leads to feeling sorry for ourselves. We always compare ourselves with somebody that we perceive has it better. And then we think the Lord's being unfair to us and so on. Um, And I think that's what the laborers did, right? The early group who had a work in the scorching sun They compared themselves to the guys who just spent an hour and um, they grumbled about it. They compared themselves and as a result, they ended up angry and grumbled at the master who in this story is obviously the Lord. So ultimately, uh, we realize, you know, only God can make things right that are wrong. And so if we're mad at the way things are, ultimately, it comes down to being angry at God and it begins to create distance between us and our relationship with the Lord And uh, it creates a lot of problems. Um, You remember Jesus said, and all through the scriptures, uh, we learn that in this world, we're going to have tribulation. You know, we're not going to probably be first in the kingdom of this world. But we're going to have tribulation. Jesus promised it, John 16. It's impossible to pass through life without experiencing disappointment and emotional hurt. Uh, The kingdom of this world, right, is preparation for the kingdom to come. And the struggles and the hardships and the obstacles are intended and meant, right, to strengthen us and to grow us and to prepare us to be able to live in the kingdom that's coming. Uh, So, uh, you know, James says there's a lot of places we could go, but James, I just think it's, uh, when I was younger, I had a really hard time getting swallowing this you know it's like count it all joy when various trials come your way there's a great opportunity when a trial comes your way count it all joy right 
my brothers, when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, when it has its full effect, will make you perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. I'm like, wow, I'm going to need a lot of trials to get to perfect, right? And to get to uh, lacking nothing. But it's preparation for the kingdom that's coming. Um, Jesus taught us to pray all the time, you know, thy kingdom come on this earth. Um, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, again, uh, both at the beginning and the end of this, the last will be first, the first will be last. So a lot of times when we're thinking ourselves, boy, I feel like I'm last. I feel like the Lord forgot about me. I feel like this shouldn't be happening to me because I negotiated a deal with the Lord. When I became a Christian, they told me that he would just love me and bless me and protect me and all of this. And now he's allowing these trials to come into my life to try to change me and grow me and make me more like himself. So again, this story is bracketed. And I think Jesus is the... uh, ultimate example of this, right? In Philippians um, chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9, talking about Jesus himself, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above all names. Well, how did that happen? Well, verse 8, being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. When Jesus humbled himself, God exalted him. Uh, he was last, you know, uh, in the world's eyes, but of course he's first in God's eyes. And the truth of us, the truth is that none of us really deserves anything. It's all by God's grace that we receive anything, right? Uh, if we work our whole lives and get a denarius, it's by his grace. It's by his choice. It's because of his love for us. I think what uh, <clears throat> a way to think about this is, I used to think about the thief on the cross. Now, You know, I've been a pastor for my career. So um, I used to think about the thief on the cross, and I used to say, wow, that guy never had to go to a committee meeting. He never had to shovel snow off the steps, you know. He never had a tithe. He never had a, you know, uh, 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 plan a retreat. He never had to, he never had, we planned this big retreat for the kids one time we had a big group of kids and it snowed like crazy everything fell apart we couldn't get any place uh, what a nightmare you know and that thief on the cross it's like today you'll be with me in paradise like that now you know what do you think do you think that that thief on the cross who never had to do anything for the lord that we should grumble about him or should we be excited about him like that's the grace of god Just look at that. You can go from being a criminal to being uh, glorified because of what Jesus did on the cross. And uh, all of us ought to, you know, we ought to understand we don't deserve anything. It's all uh, by his grace. And so when we get hurt, when, when we get hurt, when life seems unfair, you know, our hearts do get wounded, right? I mean, it's tough to go through life um, and, and, when we have these kinds of experience. But if we allow feeling sorry for ourselves to mix into that wound, uh, it begins to fester and it creates what uh, people would call resentment, right? And resentment, the word resentment is a Latin word. It just comes from uh, meaning to refeel. 
So I just, you know, rehearse this thing over and over and over again. And I begin to develop this resentment where I keep feeling sorry for myself. Poor me. You know, uh, I'm stuck with this situation and it's not getting any better and it's not going away and so forth. Well, what can we do uh, when we're stuck in this kind of thing? And I think we need each other because sometimes other people see it in us before we see it in ourselves. And to learn to, uh, you know, kind of have the fellowship at that level where we can speak into each other's lives on meaningful levels. Um, In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, I think, uh, uh, gives us great advice here. And uh, uh, chapter 313, uh, Paul says this, this one thing I do. Whenever the Bible says this one thing, I'm like, what? What's the one thing? It sounds like, oh, what is this? You know, This one thing I do, Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, right? Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on into the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let, then he says, let those who are mature think like this. <laughs> Paul's like, hey, now Paul, right? He was a great Jewish guy, and he went around trying to get rid of Christians, but he had it totally wrong. He had zeal, but not according to the truth, not according to knowledge. And so Paul's trying to get rid of Christians. He's got a terrible past, but he sees the light. God meets him, speaks to him, changes him. He becomes the greatest Christian I would say definitely of his day, but perhaps of all time, other than Jesus, right? And Paul says, this one thing I do, he's got a terrible past. He should have talked to the Samaritan woman, you know? He's got a terrible past. One thing I do. Let's say the past is that way, and let's say the future is that way, okay? We have kind of a natural bent to be focused on the past, Right? We're pretty familiar with the past, but we have to have faith to know what the future is. I mean, God's revealed a lot in the Bible about what's going to happen in the future. So we're like this, facing the past, and uh, here's how we're going into the future. <laughs> right? And I think what Paul's saying is, hey, turn around. Face the future. Of all people in the world, we Christians have a guaranteed future that we can stake our life on. Right? The Lord's coming back. Things are going to be different. Heaven is waiting for us. I mean, the promises of God about the future are ours as believers. But when we try to back into the future like this, you know, we're missing out. And Paul says, listen, this one thing I do, turn my back on the future, I mean on the past, and face the future. Because I'm anticipating this upward call of God and that everything's going to be fabulous. And so no matter what I encounter, I can look past it and see where I'm going. And it creates a, a strength and an energy, and it keeps us from that, you know, feeling sorry for ourselves. We are blessed beyond all people on the planet, the Christian community, the kingdom of God. And uh, so we can do what Paul did. Um, we can face uh, the future instead of being so focused on the past. It's so easy to focus on our past, but... I heard at this church in Richfield, the gospel changes everything, right? And I'm like, I believe that. And uh, we simply need to embrace the gospel. 
Uh, we have a future where there's no tears, no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain, no loss. It's going to be fabulous. Uh, one last thing, and I'll be done. Uh, when I was a kid, <clears throat> my, uh, my dad was a volunteer fireman. And uh, the firemen in Paramus, New Jersey, and the firemen all got together and they were going to go fishing on a, a deep sea fishing off of Montauk Point. They got a bus early in the morning, you know, and I had a bicycle accident where I had broken my collarbone and got 30 stitches in my ear. And uh, <clears throat> so my arm was in a sling, but dad had promised to take me along. So off we go with all of his firemen buddies and we get on the boat and so on and we're out there. And uh, we hit a school of bluefish, like, and they're so much fun to catch. I don't know if you know much about fishing, but they're not that great to eat, but they're really fun to catch. And, uh, you know, so we hit this school, and I'm holding my pole, and I can just reel with my arm that's in a sling. That's all I can do. So I get a fish. I hand my pole to Dad. I take his pole. He's down there trying to fight this thing to get it off the hook. He's got to bait the other hook. And so in the meantime, I've got another fish on, on his pole, and we're going back and forth like this. He's sweating like crazy, and I'm having a blast. You know, I, it's really great. So my dad taught me. He said, now, when you, uh, you know, had a big sinker, and, and we'd drop it in the ocean, and the sinker would pull it to the bottom, and uh, <clears throat> he said, now, you keep your thumb on that reel where the fish line is. And as soon as you feel the sinker hit the bottom, he said, you stop the reel from spinning. Because if you don't do that, you know what happens? The reel keeps spinning, right? And it gets a big ball of fish line. That's a nightmare, okay? And uh, so the guy next to me didn't know that. And I knew it, so I was having a ball. He lets his line down the first time, and this thing just unreels all this fish lines, all tangled up in a big ball on his thing. Now, he has a choice. He can do one of two things. He can either cut the line, right, and start over, get new line, pull it out of the spool, and start over, or he can start trying to untangle that line. Well, this poor guy sat down and started to untangle the line. Now, meanwhile, we're fishing and pulling in fish left and right, and this guy is cursing up a storm, right? Because he's trying to undo the tangled line. And sometimes in life, you know, when our sinker hits the bottom, and we don't know enough to, you know, just stop and how to deal with it, and our line gets all tangled up, we have to decide. We're either going to cut the line, we're going to turn our back on the past. I made a mistake. I didn't keep my thumb on the line, and it got all tangled up. But I'm here to fish. I'm here to live. You know? And God's made a way for me to continue if I just cut the line to the past and redo it, get a new dream, and move forward as God has called us to do. I think it's our choice as well especially when it comes to attitudes. We can get all bungled up in attitudes and try to sort it all out and figure it all out. And why, God, did you allow this and that? And the next thing, and poor me, and self-pity, and all of that, it gets to be a jumbled mess. And God says, cut the line. You know, this one thing I do, forget the past, figure out where God wants you to be in the future, cut the line, and go for it. Let's pray.
Gracious Father, we're so dependent upon you and the wisdom that you give us in your word. Um, it's so easy for us to just kind of drift and uh, our intentions might be good and our intentions might be well, but uh, you know, if we don't listen to you and we don't uh, glean the wisdom that you want to give us, uh, specifically as we're talking about some of these stories, it's so easy for us to just see life in a way that's different than the way life really is in the kingdom of God. And so we thank you for these stories, we thank you for these insights, and we thank you for the opportunity to live the life that Jesus died to give us. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.